0: Hello and many thanks for your company here on Search for Truth, your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. It's great you could join us, delighted you're with us. Our present series of talks is called The Gospel of God's Grace. The letter of Paul to the Christians in Galatia is the main basis for our study and the circumstances which caused Paul to write to them. Brian's given his talk the title, Trouble at Base, So let's find out with Brian where it all began. Thanks, John. As the
1: ship nosed into the mouth of the Orontes River, it brought back Paul and Barnabas from a successful missionary enterprise which has seen them reach as far as Derby. The Church of God at Antioch in Syria was now a mother church in her own right, as there were now daughter churches planted in the hinterlands of the northern Mediterranean shoreline. But it had been far from plain sailing, There had been confrontation with Orthodox Jewish communities in places like Iconium. They'd received mistaken adulation from pagans during cross-cultural miscommunication at Lystra. And Paul had made a shock arrival at Derby after being presumed dead following a stoning incident. According to scholars and historians, that last city was a frontier city of the Roman province of Galatia, at least at one time it was. As was often his custom, Paul lost no time writing to the new churches of Galatia, being anxious that they should stand fast in their newfound faith. And indeed, there was no time to lose. We are told Paul spent a long time with the mother church at Antioch at this stage. There was the thrill, of course, of giving them mission reports, but soon, if not from the very outset, those reports became mingled with concern for the stability of the Galatian churches. And it wasn't long before the mother church itself was gripped with the same issue that troubled the daughter churches. The Jewish rite of circumcision was fast becoming a major cause of dissension in places where both Jews and Gentiles were turning to Christ. Christ what had brought this about? For years, perhaps, the gospel had been spreading in Antioch without this matter of circumcision previously being such a major issue. In Caesarea, when Peter had preached to Cornelius and family, there had been no mention of it being controversial there either. However, around the time of Paul's first missionary journey... As the gospel penetrated further into modern-day Turkey, the peace was being disturbed back at the Antioch base. We can assume this was the first mission launched from Antioch and not from Jerusalem. And so when reports began circulating back of a rapid intake of Gentile believers into the expanding community of the Christian faith, some in the original church at Jerusalem may have become concerned. After all, converted pagans might easily let the side down. How could they be expected to reach an ethical standard of lifestyle? It might also be worth asking what had been happening politically in Jerusalem between Acts chapters 11 and 15, for those who were now troubling the churches in Turkey and Syria had come from there. Well, there had been the sudden death of Herod Agrippa, as we read about at the end of Acts chapter 12 and that in turn had been followed by various Jewish uprisings against the return to a more direct form of Roman rule. Supporters of these uprisings would inevitably be suspicious of any Roman collaborators. And it's just possible that Christian Jews, who had links with those building bridges to the Gentile world, might be thought to belong to that category. It's possible then that gospel expansion into Asia Minor would political problems back in the old country, which had been Christianity's cradle. Those whose agenda was shaped as much by political as by ethical concerns perhaps saw the imposition of circumcision as going some way to solving this problem. Not only did it symbolise the ethical commitment, but it might prove unattractive to Gentiles, which would ease the political pressure by limiting their numbers." Soon matters came to a showdown at Antioch. The Apostle Peter came to visit. That in itself was not a problem, of course. He'd learned at first hand from the Lord that it was perfectly permissible for him to eat with Gentiles. We read about that in Acts chapter 10. He'd also previously at Jerusalem shaken hands with Paul on the understanding that there was no need for Gentile Christians to live like Jews. All this meant that Peter had mingled freely with Gentiles at Antioch until certain Jerusalem-based men had arrived. Let's pick up Paul's version of events from Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that is from Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the gospel or about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So when those pushing such an agenda arrived at Antioch, Peter was already there. Under pressure, Peter stopped behaving in accordance with his own convictions and in accordance with the previously mentioned handshake, and he pulled away from having table fellowship with Gentile believers. Paul then charged Peter with hypocrisy or play-acting simply because this was not the behaviour he'd signed up to. Peter was truly no Judaizer, so why was he acting the part of one? He wouldn't be the last preacher to modify his message to suit his audience. Paul now proceeds to nail the doctrine. Luther would later make famous the term justification by faith. Summing it up to the Galatian Christians in his letter to them, Paul says in Galatians 2.15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul set things straight at Antioch, correcting Peter and, doubtless, Barnabas. But after writing to the Galatian churches, Paul and Barnabas would set out for Jerusalem to settle the same issue there once and for all and to prevent a different gospel which could never be a true alternative. The landmark Jerusalem Council decision of Acts chapter 15 would set the benchmark for all time to which reformers like Luther, as we say, would return much later. In effect, Paul says there's never been one single person born of a human father in all the history of our planet who's made himself acceptable to God based on performing religious good works. Verse 16 says very plainly, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified. The theology of justification by faith is biblically unassailable. But are the works of the law, as mentioned in this verse, being contrasted with our faith, placed objectively in Christ, or are the works of the law in this verse set over against the faithfulness of Christ? I had never considered the second possibility until it surfaced recently over a mug of coffee at one of our charity coffee mornings. But it's a translation that can be defended, and is even arguably better. It was the translation choice made by the translators of the King James Version. It's certainly by believing in Christ that we are justified, and the first part of the verse says that. But here's the question. Is this justification, which is not brought about by the works of the law, Is it further taught here to be the result of the faithfulness of Christ? The next part of the verse literally reads, Justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Viewed in this way, the faithfulness of Christ becomes a contrasting theme of the letter Paul wrote to the Galatians. His faithfulness in rescuing us from this present evil age, his faithfulness in coming as the ultimate fulfilment of the promise to Abraham, which predated even the law, and his faithfulness in coming at the precise time to be born of a woman and under the law, so as to bring us out from under its condemnation. That would be a fitting rejoinder to the Judaizers. And here's another example of the faithfulness of Christ, which we'll come to now as we conclude our reading of Galatians chapter 2. It's from verse 17. But if... While seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul writes of how as a believer in Christ's death for his sins on the cross, he died to the penalty of the law. This had happened in the death of Christ. In God's judicial reckoning, he died with Christ to the penalty of the law. Now every born-again Christian believer can say with Paul that Christ lives in him or her, and indeed that their experience of human life now is one of living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. It would seem that it's this rendering which explains most adequately the ending of that famous personal verse of Christian testimony. For the faithfulness of Christ is supremely demonstrated in the faithful love which led him to give himself up sacrificially for each one who believes in him. Having received him as personal saviour, the believer knows as a result of course that he or she is declared righteous before God.
0: I do hope that you've received Christ as your personal saviour, as Brian explained in his talk today. At Search for Truth, our wish is that you might know the joy and eternal security that comes from faith in Christ. So if you've got any questions, please write in. Brian will be glad to help. And we never pass on your details to anyone else, so you can contact us with confidence. And there's also a transcript book for all the talks in this series and it's available free on request by asking for the title The Gospel of God's Grace. You can order by email or by post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, sn 48 UK. Our email address is sft.churchesofgod.info And did you know that one of the ways you can listen again is by audio podcast or MP3 versions of many past programmes? You can use your computer and if you go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com you can browse the list of previous talks which you'll see has been sorted into categories to assist you to find what you're looking for. Unfortunately, we're almost at the end of our programme today, but next week there's another talk about the Gospel of God's Grace. So please join us again if you can. But for now, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. you.